You can grab your Bibles and open them up to Second uh, Kings chapter 8. Uh, we've been studying uh, the house of Ahab for the last many uh, weeks and how in 1 Kings chapter 21, uh, Elisha was, was uh, fed up or the Lord was fed up with the wickedness of Ahab's house and proclaimed a prophecy over Ahab's house that uh, the Lord was going to bring it to an end violently. And we'll read that prophecy in a little bit, but uh, we've just been seeing the progression towards that. Uh, his house, you know, his sons, uh, his, his whole wicked household being um, basically put to death. And uh, we've seen Elijah's ministry to Israel and prophetic ministry to King Ahab. That ended when he was caught up in a chariot of fire. And now Elisha has been ministering to Israel for some time and prophesying out uh, to Ahab's son, uh, King Jehoram. And so we've been focusing on the prophet Elisha, a picture of Christ. So much of his ministry just points to Jesus. But uh, most of us would agree that Elisha would be a good friend to have around. You know, uh, most of the prophets probably would be. But, uh, you know, you cook up a nasty stew, you know, with uh, bitter herbs that you find in the woods and get a stomach ache, and there, Elisha, your, your good buddy is, to put some Pepto-Bismol in it and simmer the bitter stew down. You know, there's death in the pot. You know, probably one of my favorite quotes in the Old Testament. You know, are the bullies picking on you at school? Well, Elisha is there to call a herd of bears out of the woods to come and chase away the bullies. Did you drop a borrowed axe head in the river? Elisha will drop a twig in and make it float. You know, are you going to battle and need to know the strategies of the enemy? You know, Elisha hears the words that the enemy's general tells his wife in bed at night, you know. And so uh, a great guy to have around. It's been said that a faithful friend doubles our joys and divides our sorrows. And uh, we see Elisha was a great friend to someone the Bible talks about and calls her the, the, uh, the widow, or excuse me, the, the Shunammite woman. And by this chapter, she's a, a widow, but um, he, this relationship he has with the Shunammite woman is, is going to prove to have some incredible uh, benefits as, uh, as their famine in the land of Israel. And so as we look at verse 1, then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines for seven years. So you remember in chapter 4, uh, Elisha was traveling and he traveled back and forth and he would always stop by the house of this Shunammite woman. And finally she convinced her husband to build a little apartment with a little bed and a little table and a lamp and all that. I always loved the thought that he had like his own little bed and breakfast to stop by, you know, and he just wanted to bless the lady, uh, for all that he'd blessed her with. And he asked, you know, how, how can we bless you? And she said, I don't need anything. I dwell among my own people. And so he said, well, I can tell you don't have any kids, little chillins around here, you know. So he 
uh, prophesied that in a year from this day, he, she would have a little boy running around. And then you remember that a year, you know, time went by and as the boy started to grow, he ended up getting some sort of heat stroke out in the field and, uh, and dying. And the, so the woman just knew immediately what she needed to do. So she set off towards Mount Carmel to, uh, to fetch Elisha to come and to heal her, her son. You know, her words were, all is well. You know, all is well. She had great faith that the Lord uh, could heal her son. And, uh, but, you know, her answer when asked, you know, can, can we help you in any way was I dwell among my own people. Um, but now she's, you know, she's had to leave this comfort that she had among her family farm or big family, you know, something productive that was happening and, uh, and get out of there because there was this seven-year famine. Now, we just read last week about a famine that was happening in Samaria when the king of Assyria came and, and besieged the hill that the city of Samaria sits on. Now, while that was a, a form of judgment that the Lord used the Syrian army for, uh, this is a different type of judgment. This is actually a, a divine ceasing of the land to grow and water to come upon the earth. And, and uh, it was a divine judgment, you know, completely fulfilled within seven years. And so this woman, the Shunammite woman, did what the man of God told her to do and went down to the Philistine uh, area. And this was a common place for people to go during famines. You read of Isaac actually went to this area when there was a famine back in Genesis. And, you know, Abraham, they would travel through this area to go even towards Egypt, which was even a bigger breadbasket, you know, during the famines that would happen. And so uh, the woman just went where it was, it was commonplace to travel in this area dur- during these times of famine. But this divine judgment, and again, we're reminded of God's promise toward Israel that if they, you know, are o- obedient, there would be blessing. Uh, in fact, Deuteronomy eleven sixteen says, you know, take heed to yourselves and don't let your heart be deceived. If you turn around and, and serve other gods and worship them, the Lord's anger will be aroused against you and he will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain and the land will yield no produce and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. Remember last week we studied the famine in Samaria and how finally Elisha called for the end of this famine and he said, you know, he said to King Jehoram, I tell you that by this time tomorrow, uh, you know, a quart of wheat will be sold for, you know, barely anything. You know, you, could, you can buy, a, you know, a ton of food for no money at all. And remember the, the officer on which the king leaned on his hand said, even if the windows of heaven were open, could such blessing happen? And what did Elisha say? Oh, you'll see it tomorrow, but you won't eat of it. And last week we closed with that guy getting trampled in the gates as everyone ran out to this buffet that was out at the Assyrian camp. Uh, So uh, indeed, the Lord can open the windows and pour out the grain and fill our fridges and our pantries when we're obedient, you know, Uh, and and he can also shut those windows when we're disobedient. Uh, He he corrects us. He chastens those that he loves. And... um, and so this woman, one of the women that's given divine warning about this famine, you know, because she's an obedient woman, she has a, a heart for the Lord, a heart after the Lord. She's warned about this time and, and told, get out of here quick and, and go to this land where you can, 
you'll be able to survive. And so uh, then the king, or verse 3, so it came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, and she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. And then the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, tell me, please, all the great things that Elisha has done. So seven years are done. The woman comes back. You know, this was her family's land. Uh, You know, she basically didn't, you know, give it up. She just went on a seven-year vacation, basically. And coming back, she went back to the king to get the land that it was her right to have. And so uh, she goes to appeal, but right before she gets there, interesting, we see King Jehoram talking with our old friend, you know, Gehazi or Jehazi, however you want to say it. Um, and he's, he's asking him, you know, what are all the great things that Elisha has done? Now, something we've seen is that the king had kind of a love-hate relationship with Elisha. You couldn't help but love the, the, the miracles and the power. And, you know, this guy was just, he, Elisha, this prophet, was quite the man to be reckoned with, you know. Uh, there was something that the king, uh, that was attractive about Elisha, you know, he, he would appreciate Elisha at certain times, like when he ended the famine in the last chapter, uh, yet other times uh, he would hate uh, Elisha for the prophetic speaking of truth. And, you know, Proverbs tells us all about that, you know, if, if someone comes and corrects you in the Lord, uh, you're a fool if you don't heed, and, and if you hate those rebukes that's foolishness and so king jehoram you know he he despised the correction of the lord something that we're told not to do um and so king jehoram you know while he despised the correction from elisha he was interested in elisha and wanted to hear these stories kind of from the mission field you know stories from the mission field are always exciting and you know, people are putting themselves out there on the line and yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit and tell me a story, tell me a story. And, um, and so there's an interest that's sparked. Now, uh, Elisha, remember, is, is a type of Christ where Elijah was a type of John the Baptist preparing the way really for the ministry of Elisha. But um, it's interesting here that King Jehoram is kind of like a Herod Antipas. And in a couple of weeks in, on our Sunday morning studies, we'll get to Luke chapter 23, and we'll read about Herod Antipas being excited to see a miracle uh, from the hands of Jesus. And in Luke 23 verse 8, let me just read this to you, just so you can hear just this, this love-hate relationship that Herod would have with Jesus. It says, now when Herod saw Jesus, remember Pilate, sent Jesus over to Herod so Herod could deal with the trial. Uh, When Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. Someone make an exceedingly glad look. I don't know, but, you know. Wow, Ron, that was pretty good. I've never seen that look on your face before. I don't know why. Oh, never again, huh? Okay. Um, He was exceedingly glad, uh, for he desired for a long time to see him. Uh, because he'd heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he, Jesus, answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood vehemently and accused him. 
Then Herod with his men of war treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other for previously they had been at war with each other. And so just uh, something of wanting to see a miracle. You know, Herod was a spectator of Jesus, but never would bow the knee to Jesus. He was an admirer of Jesus. You know, I've heard about the mighty deeds that this guy has done, walking on the water and multiplying the fish and raising the dead and the lepers, you know, healed and the blind able to see, the deaf able to hear. And, uh, and yet when he didn't, dance, little monkey dance, you know, uh, then Herod just hated him. And so Elisha in the same way had many admirers and many spectators wanting to see a show, but, uh, but never would they bow the knee to the lordship uh, of Jesus. So, um, and so here's Gehazi, you know, uh, you know, interesting. Remember last time we saw Gehazi, what had happened to him? Remember he was Elisha's servant, kind of in a lukewarm state. He'd gone on kind of a spiritual decline until he fully lied to Elisha and took that, those presents from Naaman. And uh, and it was a, was in a lying uh, time right then. And remember he was uh, given Naaman's leprosy. The last time we saw him, he went out of Elisha's presence as white as snow. You know, he was singing white as snow, white as snow. And it was for the wrong reasons. You know, he was all leprous. Um, and so here he is, you know, somehow just picture the Gehazi standing in the court of the king, you know, all white as snow with the leprosy, not in a good place uh, with the Lord. And, the, and uh, you know, what are the great things Elisha has done? Now it happened as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, and all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land uh, until now. So talk about providence. Have you guys ever seen the Lord work, work like this in your lives? You know, where, you know, you're just relying completely on him. You know, you're, you're praying the prayer of Jehoshaphat, you know, like, I don't know what else to do, Lord. My eyes are on you. You know, I'm, I'm coming back to get my land. And here's this wicked king, like, like King Ahab, Ahab's son, and I'm supposed to go stand before him and ask for my land back and no doubt nervous and palm, you know, what's he going to be like? And she walks in here and the Lord had gone before her in Gehazi and is telling these, these miracle stories. And it's incredible to just see the door opened for the Shunammite woman to get her land back. This obedient woman, this woman after God's own heart, you could say, uh, experiences the Lord opening this door, you know, to, to receive her property. And uh, man, I just love how the Lord does that. 
And, uh, you know, the, the steps and the stops are orchestrated by the Lord. You know, in, in reading Revelation chapter 2 yesterday, you know, the, or actually chapter 3 to the church in Philippi, uh, Jesus says, I'm the one who opens and no one can close. And I close and no one can open. You know, uh, you know the, the steps and the stops are orchestrated by the Lord. Uh, sometimes he says go and sometimes he says no. You know, but here he's opening the door for her to have her, uh, her property back. And uh, man, I just, I love to see those times in my life. Uh, I was trying to think today if there was a time where I, I had walked in anywhere, you know, trying to, to do something when, you know, someone else was there and the ground had been prepared and I couldn't really think of anything, but I kept thinking about how um, since Lindsay and I have been married, uh, we had made, we never owned our own home and uh, always have wanted to own our own home, you know, always looking at real estate, but never owned our own home. And, um, Three times in our marriage, we'd put offers on houses. Once in Corvallis, twice here in Prineville. And every time, uh, you know, these houses would be on the market for, you know, either like a year or a year and a half or something like that. And one house, uh, no, one had made an, no one had made an offer a year and a half. Just no one had touched it. Every time uh, that day, someone else made an offer and it was a better offer than ours and the house would get sold. You know, and it doesn't make you mad. I mean, you're just like, that's the Lord, <laughs> you know, uh, that's the Lord saying no. And um, you can pray right now. We put an offer on a house that's in short sale and, you know, who knows? We're just, but it's kind of cool because like I was praying tonight, we just have open hands. We're just like, we don't have to have it, you know, <laughs> just like we're, we're totally just expecting something like the Lord to just shut the door and that's totally fine. Um, but I just, I love when, there's just the Lord goes before and prepares other men's hearts and, and gives us favor, um, whether that looks good, whether that's a shut door or a, or an open door. But um, the providence here for this woman and notice her personal connections with Elisha, having a godly friend opened up these doors to get her property back. You know, Psalm chapter one, you guys should have it memorized or know what it is, but you know, it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, you know, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, nor, you know, uh, walks in the paths of unrighteousness, you know, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and he meditates on it day and night, you know, um, and here's a woman whose friends and the, the people she sat with were godly, you know, and, and because she had these godly friends, it just opened up this awesome door for her to get her property back. Um, and not only get her, you know, and it wasn't even necessarily even her friendship, but her obedience to the Lord, you know, that opened up that door and, uh, and get her land back. But not only get her land back at the end of her six, she'd get Everything that her land had yielded in that time period, she would get the proceeds of that. So King Jehoram, you know, does above and beyond, you know, just like Ephesians says, that's what the Lord does. You know, uh, the Lord gives above and beyond what we could ask or think. Then it goes on to say, according to the glory of him who works in the churches. You know, it's for his glory that he does above and beyond what we could even ask or think or even pray for sometimes. And just imagine, wow, all the proceeds for the last seven years, I get them. Now it was a famine in the land, so I'm not sure, you know, that it was a whole bunch, 
But, um, but you know, that's the Lord above and beyond. And, um, and you know what? This would be a very encouraging thing for people to read because remember, um, up until like the last, I think it's the last two chapters of this book, um, uh, were written before Babylonian captivity. Okay. Then the last couple chapters were written after the Babylonian captivity of Judah. And so it's interesting to think of the people had this book when they were coming back from Babylon. You know, they had this book and it, it was no doubt an encouraging thing to read about this woman who showed obedience because there's a whole lot of stories of people who are disobedient in these books. But here's this Shunammite woman, a, a woman who loved the Lord and how the Lord was looking out for her and going before her as she went back to her home. And here they are going back after they kind of have a little welt on their bottom from a good spanking from the Lord, you know. Uh, they've been chastened for 70 years by Babylon and they're going back home and, and the Lord's like, be like this woman, you know, be like this woman, be obedient, you know, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, be a woman of faith, you know, and be men and women of faith. And see how I'll show myself strong on your behalf. I'll put Gehazi's up in front of you to prepare the way. And uh, so no doubt encouraging uh, for those people as they would read it later on. Verse 7, Then Elisha went to Damascus, uh, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. And the king said to Hazael, uh, take a present in your hand and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, shall I recover from this disease? And uh, so note that, you know, here the king of Syria, you know, he, he's remembering as he's sick, his buddy Naaman, who was leprous, and was sent down to Israel to meet Elisha, who was, you know, uh, renowned for being a healer. And Naaman came back to Ben-Hadad, you know, totally clean and like skin like a little baby's bottom, you know, just totally uh, pure. And uh, perfect opportunity as Elisha is up north uh, in Damascus. And, and he says, inquire of the Lord. Notice he doesn't say, go inquire of Baal. Our nation's God, you know, the God that I bow the knee to. He says, no, uh, go inquire of the Lord and, and go ask Elisha, am I going to be able to uh, recover of this disease? And verse 9, so Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him. And it's gonna, we're going to read more than just a present. <laughs> uh, but of every good thing, of Damascus, 40 camel loads. And he came and stood before him and said, your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you saying, shall I recover from this disease? So uh, do you see the similarities with Naaman's story here? You know, Naaman went down with, you know, just 750 shekels of silver and uh, I think it was the 300 shekels, shekels of gold and 10 changes of garment, came down with all these presents hoping to buy his healing. 
And uh, maybe he didn't tell that part of the story to Ben-Hadad, but um, Ben-Hadad thought, well, maybe I can buy my healing. You know, maybe today's a, a buy your healing day with Elisha. And so he sends the, the 40 camel loads, kind of the semi-truck of the day, you know, uh, just uh, loaded with these gifts, every good thing of Damascus. And uh, uh, so, so they go down there and Elisha says to him, Go say to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. Now, it's, it's interesting. I'm reminded of Elijah back in 1 Kings chapter 22 when Jehoshaphat and Ahab were going to go to battle against King Ben-Hadad of Syria. And remember, uh, Ahab has all of these false prophets prophesying if they're going to win the battle or not, you know, and they, they kind of perform their prophecies before them on this threshing floor. And King Jehoshaphat says, isn't there a prophet of the Lord that we could ask if we're going to win this battle or not? And he goes, well, there is, but it's Elijah and I hate him, <laughs> you know, uh, or no, it was Micaiah. It was Micaiah and I hate him. And, and Jehoshaphat's like, go get him anyways. And so the servant goes to get uh, Micaiah, and he says, hey, here's what's happening over at the threshing floor. All the prophets are prophesying good for King Ahab that we're going to win the battle. So you do so too. And he says, hey, I'm going to prophesy whatever the Lord tells me to prophesy. And so he goes back to the threshing floor and Micaiah prophesies, go up, you're going to win the battle. And what was Ahab's response? How many times must I make you swear that you're telling me the truth? <laughs> you know, and then he goes on to say, you're right. I was lying to you. You're not going to win. You're going to die out there in the battle. And just in a similar way, uh, you know, King, or King Elisha, by now he's a king. No, he's not. Um, Elisha says, you know, uh, go, to, go to say to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. And I don't think it, was, it wasn't deceptive. I actually think what happened here was... Um, he, he was going to recover from this disease. But then as he's speaking, no, the Lord's going to tell me that he's, he's actually going to die, but it's not going to be from the disease. It's not going to be from the disease. And then this, you got to love verse 11. Um, then he sent, Elisha set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed and the man of God wept. So, you know, go tell him, you know, that he's going to live. But the Lord just told me he's going to die. And then he pulled the old. You know, do, you, do you have, anyone have friends that, you know, stare at you? You know, I have a friend, his name's James. And I mean, this guy, uh, he would always ask me, hey, how are you doing? He loved me. I mean, we had, we had a great relationship. Uh, I, you know, how are you doing? I'd be like, I'm good, man. I'm good. And then he'd Like this situation right here that we're reading about, I'm like, no, really, I'm good. <laughs> and uh, he was very, um, dude, he was like spirit-filled. He is spirit-filled. He's going through some trials right now, but he loves Jesus. You can pray for my friend James. Um, but uh, that's exactly, you know, he, he's, then Elisha just starts staring at uh, Hazael. 
until Hazael is ashamed from this. You know, his heart starts beating. Why are you looking at me like this? And the man of God began to weep. Totally awkward situation. Like um, the epitome of that starts weeping. And Hazael says, why is my Lord weeping? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire and their young men you will kill with the sword and you will dash their children and rip open their women with, uh, that are with child. Now, who's he talking to here? Hazael, the king's servant. You know, and why is he being like this toward Hazael? And, and why is he prophesying this horrific thing upon Hazael? And Hazael's wondering that too in verse 13. Uh, what is your servant, a dog, that he should go do this gross thing? And Elisha answered and said, the Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. Now remember back in Luke, or in Luke, in 1 Kings uh, chapter 19, Remember when Elijah got all depressed after the victory on Mount Carmel and he ran down to uh, the, the Beersheba, the southernmost part of Israel, and he left his servant and then he went down to uh, the mountain of God and spent time down there and, and, you know, just depression and wanting to die and hating the ministry life. And remember the Lord strengthened him and gave him food. The angel of the Lord appeared and said, okay, you're done whining. <laughs> you know, I've got more for you to do. Get up and get back up to Israel. And he gave him three tasks to do. You guys remember what they were? I'm not going to tell you. I need to hear them. We might be here a while tonight. Number one, anoint Hazael king over Israel. Or excuse me, Assyria. I apologize. So that was number one, anoint Hazael king over Syria. Number two, anoint Jehu king over Israel. And number three, Elisha. Go anoint Elisha and make him uh, your successor. And so all that we read about was at the end of chapter 19 there, he went and he found Elisha plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in a field and he made him his successor. And we see 10 years goes by and Elisha is his little disciple walking around with him everywhere they go. But we don't ever read about Hazael being anointed king or Jehu being anointed king. And so what happened there? Well, uh, right now, uh, I believe Elisha is performing that task um, for Elijah. You know, he, he's the disciple and it didn't get done. And so now it's being done. And the Lord just showed him, you know, that you're going to be king over Syria. And it's not going to, you, you're going to have, and actually history shows that for the next uh, 40 years, um, Hazael had a horrific campaign against Israel where he did these exact things. Uh, he was he was a horrible uh, king, but um, he's anointed over Syria. Now, why? Do you remember in 1 Kings chapter 19? Do you remember why the purpose of these three anointings? Anybody remember the purpose of these three anointings? Hazael over Syria, uh, um, Jehu over Israel, 
and Elisha over as a prophet. Do you remember the purpose of those three anointings? What's that? So Elisha could go to heaven, and Eli- or Elijah could go to heaven, and Elisha could take over. There's like one thing that all three are going to accomplish, and it's destroying Ahab's wicked house. That's what all of these things were for. And so uh, that's exactly why Hazael is going to be so uh, brutal, is because he's going to have a ministry or a role from the Lord in destroying um, the wicked house of Ahab and also the, the wicked ways of the Israelites. So what am I, a dog that I would do these things? I would never do those things. I've never thought wicked thoughts like that. You just put those things in my mind. Oh, that's horrible. I got to go take a shower, you know. Uh, and then verse 14, then he departed from Elisha and he came to his master and said to him, what did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me that you would surely recover. I heard a story about two friends hiking up in the wilderness, and as they're walking along the path, they come across a rattlesnake. And so they're easy, easy, turn and back away. And as they turn and back away, the snake jumps and bites one of the friends right on his bottom, you know, right on his dairy hair. And the friend falls down on the ground and screaming and, you know, I don't know what to do. Go get a doctor. Go get help. So the friend says, okay, I will. And he goes and he runs and he talks to the doctor. And the doctor says, oh, you don't need me. Just get your pocket knife and make two little you know, incisions on the bite mark. And you need to suck the poison out and your friend will survive. And so the friend went back to the trailhead and there his friend is writhing in pain. And the friend says, well, what'd they say? What'd they say? And his friend says, sorry, bro, you're going to die. <laughs> You're going to die. I'm, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and that's sort of what's happening here. What did he say? What did he say? You're going to live. <laughs> but he also said something else. He also said something else in verse 15. But it happened on the next day that he took a thick cloth and he dipped it in water and he spread it over Ben-Hadad's face so that he died and Hazael reigned in his place. So we go from two verses ago, what am I, a dog that I would do these sick things to, oh, it looks, you look like you need a nice little washcloth over your face, you know? And uh, apparently he did have it in him. And, you know, there's the warnings there for us that we need to, you know, be careful about our righteousness, thinking that we're self-righteous, that we're, we're, we're you know, what the Proverbs say, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And Hazael was very prideful that I would never do these things. I would never kill anyone. I would never do these things. And yet we see he does and his reign just begins. And, um, and uh, notice he also takes matters into his own hands. You know, Elisha didn't say in his prophecy that you're going to go kill King Ben-Hadad of Syria. He said, no, you're, you're going to be king. You know, let the Lord work that out. But no, Hazael took matters into his own hands. You know, but we remember David, he's the opposite of that. You know, he was anointed king by Samuel and years went by before he ever saw the throne. In fact, the king of Israel, Saul, always was chasing him around. And two different times Saul was delivered, you know, Saul was in David's grasp. He could have killed him. Once in a cave when Saul is relieving himself in the cave and David sneaks up and his buddies are saying, kill him right now, kill Saul. 
I'm not going to kill him. I don't want to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. But he cuts off a part of the robe and later on says, look, Saul, look what I could have killed you. You were in my grasp. And Saul weeps and repents and I'm sorry, I would never hurt you. You're like my little boy, you know. And then a little while later, you know, uh, David sneaks into Saul's camp while he's sleeping and takes his spear and I can't remember what else he took, but takes a spear, I don't know, his helmet or something and in the morning says, look how close I was to your bed. I could have killed you, but I didn't. I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. So quit chasing me. You know, he, he knew that the Lord's going to accomplish the purposes and, and we don't want to take matters into our own hands and make Ishmael's like Abraham did with Hagar, you know, when, when really the seed was to come through Sarah. And so, um, but ben, or Hazael took the matters in his own hand and, and uh, suffocated Ben-Hadad. And uh, what's incredible is that archaeology point, you know, it, there's, there's archaeology today that proves that the Bible is true. And there's a big black stone called, um, it's a city in Germany, starts with a B, the Berlin Stone. Thank you. <laughs> you never said anything. Uh, the Berlin Stone was found. It's a big black stone that talks about uh, Hazael, the son of nobody, steals the throne. You know, and uh, in the historical account there is on that stone. And so Hazael reigned in his place. Now, uh, here is where the book becomes a little confusing. And this is where I started having trouble with names and things. And so, uh, Greg, why don't you go ahead and throw this, the slide up? Uh, because we're going to read about two different Jehorams reigning on the, during the same time, but for different sides. Okay, and they have nicknames of Joram, which is kind of the shortened form of Jehoram. And so uh, you'll read either Jehoram or Joram, and it's like, who is he talking about? And so just know that over in the red for Israel, there's a Jehoram. And then over tonight, we're reading of a new king, uh, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat. Uh, we'll, we'll read about them today. So it's a little bit confusing during this time. It's kind of like having two President Bushes. You know, it's like, which one are we talking about? Um, so you'll have to constantly refer to that probably, but that's okay. I still do too. So verse 16, now in the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, having been killed in Judah, uh, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as the king of uh, Judah. So over on the right, we've got King Jehoram, and we're going to see that there's not going to be any star by his name. Uh, something we're gonna, we know is that he had Ahab, wicked King Ahab from Israel's daughter as a wife. Her name was Athaliah, and she was just as wicked as her parents, Ahab and her mom, Jezebel. And so uh, this, this bad marriage that sadly King Jehoshaphat, good King Jehoshaphat arranged this marriage. And so, you know, she, he married a non-believer, Jehoram did. And uh, it's been said, if you marry a non-believer, you'll get the devil as a father-in-law. And that's exactly what happened here. She has, uh, he has Ahab as a father-in-law. And, uh, you know, it's sad because Jehoshaphat was such a godly king um, but he, he made this bad alliance, which just 
made his son backslide. It made his son make poor decisions. And his wife was always counseling him to do wicked things, just like her parents had such an influential role in her life. And it just makes you hurt for Jehoshaphat, such a good godly king, and his son not. And, you know, it just makes me think about my little boy, Roro, and how I just, you know, I only have him in my house for so long. I only have little Laney in my house for so long. And and I just want to be a good example and train them up in the way they should go so that when they're old, they won't depart from it. And I want them to be better in the faith than I am. I want them to be more on fire for Jesus than I am. But Jehoshaphat's son, Joram, uh, isn't. And uh, verse 17, <clears throat> he was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. Not a very long reign. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And he's a king of Judah. And so it's sad to see uh, it going downhill for Judah, just as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so what did Joram do as his first act of king? Uh, flip over to Second Chronicles chapter 2, or chapter 21, and we can read of what his first act as king was. Uh, Jehoram had six brothers. I'll just kind of give you while you're flipping. He had six brothers. Um, all of them were sons of Jehoshaphat. And uh, Jehoshaphat would give them silver and gold and fortified cities. But let's read what he did to all of his six brothers in chapter 21, verse 3 of Second Chronicles. Their father gave them great gifts of silver and gold and precious things with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom of Je- to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. Now when Jehoram was established over the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and killed all his brothers with the sword and also others of the princes of Israel. So his first act was this this horrible deed, which Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes, was carried out at the insistence of his wife Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab. And so you see just Jezebel's daughter. We know how wicked Jezebel has been. Just martyring the prophets of God. Just wicked, idolatrous, adulterous, uh, horrible woman. And it's all rubbed off on Athaliah. And so she insists, kill all of your brothers. Kill the six. Well, look down at verse 12 there in Second Chronicles 21. A letter came... To him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord God of your father David, because you've not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father, or in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the king of Israel, and have made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot like the harlotry of the house of Ahab, And also have killed your brothers, those of your father's household, who were better than yourself. Behold, the Lord will strike your people with a serious affliction, your children, your wives, and all of your possessions. And you will become very sick 
with the disease of your intestines until your intestines have come out by reason of the sickness day by day. Horrible way to die. Um, After all this, the Lord struck him in his intestines with an incurable disease. Then it happened in the course of time after the end of two years that his intestines came out because of his sickness. So he died in severe pain and his people made no burning for him like the burning of his fathers. He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years and to no one's sorrow departed. However, they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. And so you just see the, the, the results of being a sinner, <laughs> the, the results of, of practicing idolatry. And notice that Elijah in his letter calls um, idolatry harlotry. You know, and, and if you look in, um, I believe it's in Exodus, where you remember when Balak hired Balaam to uh, come and to curse Israel as they came through his land. You know, Balak saw all these Israelites coming through like, like the number of locusts, you know. 